Well, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to Colossians chapter 3. Last week, we started a new series on work and rest. We, we spent two weeks, uh, this is week number two on, on work. Next week, we're going to shift gears and spend a couple weeks uh, focusing in on rest. The reason we're doing that is this. Uh, a recent poll uh, told us that 84% of Canadians are disengaged in their work, uh, meaning that they're not passionate about what they do. Um, they lack focus in it, lack meaning in it, uh, lack enjoyment of it, all of that. Some so much so, uh, a large percentage so much so that they're actually a, a detriment to their co company or to fellow coworkers. Just not finding um, joy and satisfaction in their work. And this is a problem. This is a problem because... Um, because if in, in, in workable, it kind of in a, uh, how, what's the way to phrase it? In, in the employable years of your life, so, you know, whatever, 15, 18 to 65 or so, you spend 35% of all of those years, those total work, workable hours working. You spend 35% of your waking hours doing that. On a typical work week, if you work full-time hours, you work half of your waking hours. It's an astounding amount of time. And listen, Central, if we haven't discovered, if we haven't discovered how to connect our faith in Jesus to how we go about our work and what that looks like, we are spending nearly half of our lives unable or inefficiently viewing our work and doing our work Christianly, if I could use that phrase. And here's the thing, at Central, we believe that Jesus changes everything, like absolutely everything in our lives. The way we love our families and look at our families, our motivations, our, how, how we view our neighbors, how we treat our bank accounts, everything we value, all of it shifts because everything changes in light of encountering Jesus. But there's this... Um, there's this kind of lie going around and we've fallen for it, which is that, no, life works this way. There's, there's, there's a divide between the, the sacred and the secular. So in our sacred lives, there's church on Sunday mornings, there's prayer before dinner. And if we're in a life group, well, that too. But then there's our secular lives and, you know, the real world and, and, and you know, that's where I got to spend a lot of my time and I just do that, but I'm not connecting the sacred with the secular. We, we, we have fallen for the idea that those things aren't one. But, but what we're saying about Jesus is that if he changes everything, that, that divide gets blown up. And there is no divide. We are followers of Jesus in every circumstance, in our family interactions, friend interactions, neighborly interactions, in, the, in what goes on in our own hearts and certainly in our work. There is no divide. Don't fall for it. Faith in Jesus isn't a compartment of our lives. It permeates and radically transforms all of life. I know some of you, I've had conversations with you about these things. I know some of you work jobs that you don't particularly like. And you don't really feel like they serve much of a purpose. That they're not important work. Well, this text is for you this morning. 
And it's found in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Because if you feel like your work is menial, mundane, or insignificant, I want, insignificant, I want you to listen really close. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So what's been going on here in Colossians chapter 3 um, is that Paul has been speaking uh, to wives and to husbands, to children and to their fathers, and now he is speaking to servants. He's speaking to slaves. And this is my first point. It's the fact that all work matters to God. We need to recognize who Paul is talking to here. He's talking to slaves, slaves in, the, uh, in ancient uh, Mediterranean time. Now, just as a side, before we really get into this, I want us to see that Paul's not condoning slavery here. He's speaking to the reality of slavery. Slavery in the ancient Mediterranean world was radically different from what you and I think about when we think of the African-American slave trade or when we think of modern-day human trafficking. Very, very different things. Not ultimately a good thing, it's not right for any human being to own another human being. We're all made in the image of God, and that should not be. And so we need to recognize that fact and also recognize um, that um, this, the slavery of the ancient Mediterranean world is quite different than what we conceptualize. A, a, a lot of the slavery at this time was voluntary. It was actually a, a beneficial step forward for you or your family. It typically wasn't for life. Um, Really, a, a modern comparable, I'm stretching it a little bit and recognize that, but a modern comparable um, for uh, the slavery of the ancient Mediterranean world would be maybe an illegal uh, immigrant worker. So, so think about their situation. It's, it, it's not good. It's, it's not good in such a way that they think to work illegally in another country is better than what I have. And will give me more opportunity. And at the same time, when they go to that next country, they have very few rights. If any, the pay is poor and the work is hard. And so that's something of the situation here. But think with me for a moment of the kind of work that slaves would do at, at that time. It was mundane, menial work. Working in the field, long hours and working hard, cleaning floors and dishes and everything without control over what you do or don't do every day. You ever feel that way in your work? Like you're doing this job and maybe you're doing the same routine over and over and over again. You have no freedom in your work to be creative. You're just getting a particular task done, right? And there's just this routine to it that, that you don't particularly like. Well, how do you live? How do you bring your faith in Jesus into that context? Well, interestingly, just a little bit more about this context here that Paul is speaking to. Paul's writing directly to slaves here. He's writing directly to slaves. Do you notice that? So what would be expected in this time period is for Paul to say, slave masters, treat your slaves this way. But it doesn't say that. It says slaves. Really honor Jesus. And so what that means is this letter to the church in Colossae is being written to the church in this city for them to read. Which means that when it arrives and is being read, there is a section for the slaves among them. Which means that the church was beginning already to be something very unique. 
There were freemen in the church and there were also slaves, but together they were brothers and sisters in Christ. But the slaves in the room were given a special word here because their work was hard. Their work was challenging. They often had slave masters who were unkind. How are they to approach this? Paul is speaking into that. You got a bad boss? Listen up. All right. Paul is speaking here. We can really translate this into employer-employee relationships. Paul is treating these slaves with dignity and is encouraging them to honor Jesus with honest, hard work from the heart. That all work matters to God. We talked about this last week, that there's dignity in all work. Work is sacred because God made it and made it good. The Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we see is God working from the start, and it's something good. He got his hands dirty in the dust and fashioned humanity, right? He was willing to do it. And then he called, commissioned, mandated people to work, to build, to create, and to work towards the new heavens and the new earth, Whatever the work it is that we are given to, it all matters to God. So if your work does not harm people, right, but contributes to society, it is as important in God's eyes as any other work. You need to hear that. He's not swayed and moved and taken by what our society deems as important. We are. We think, man, that guy, right? Wow. He's an important person. Look at his work. Look at his job. Look what he does. He's significant. Look what she does. Look at how gifted she is in that role that she does that makes such a difference. She's an important person. Wow. They're clearly getting paid a lot. Wow. They are important. God's not swayed and moved by those things like we are. You and what you do matter to God. Period. Second. Look what it says again in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. As you're doing this, this work, this menial work, you're not really serving your earthly master. You're serving Jesus. Your work is for him. So point number two, Jesus is your boss. Whoever you are, whatever you do, Jesus is your boss. My paraphrase is, so work for the true master, Jesus. Work for the Lord. It's to slaves that Paul writes, whatever you do, give it your very best because you're actually not working for your human master. You're working for Jesus himself. Look, what this means is that Dave, Joe, Gladys, whatever, isn't ultimately your boss. Jesus is. Does that change anything for you? If in your work, what you go and do, what you put your mind and your hands to, if your boss in that work is Jesus, does that change anything for you? Does that change your work ethic or your attitude? It should. And what we're seeing in this text is that it, that's the case. Jesus is that boss of yours. So look, if Jesus were literally your boss at work, what would that change in you? We might be a little more committed. 
An argument can be made that Christians should be the best employers and employees. We're going to get into why in a little bit because our motivations can be purely for the good of others and things like that. But we should be very committed people. We should be on time. See, if we're not on time, we're already a bad witness in our work. If we lack commitment in our jobs, like don't expect that people are going to be compelled by your relationship with Jesus. But if Jesus is your employer, that, that, that you are committed, that you show up on time and you put in the work is significant. It says to work heartily for the, word, for the Lord. Give yourself to hard work. The summer after grade 12, after I graduated from grade 12, I, I worked for a landscaping company in, in a sketchy part of Calgary with a boss that kind of scared me a little bit. And once in a while, he would drive by in his truck and see how we were, do, were doing. And I would push the lawnmower a lot quicker with more determination when he showed up. When he was watching, I was working. And then he'd drive away, and I'd get into the rhythm of, well, he's not going to be back for a few hours, and I would not push the lawnmower quite as hard, and I'd take water breaks more frequently just, you know, to hydrate and, you know, things like that, and just, you know, didn't want to push it too hard or anything. Uh, I actually remember one scenario. Uh, we, were, we were digging uh, a trench somewhere, and uh, there was only one shovel, and so I just thought, well, and he was shoveling, so I'm like, well, I guess I'll just, like, sit down. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I... I I remember him looking at me and just like fuming. You're sitting down while your boss is digging in the ground? What are you doing? I was like, ah, I guess I'll get up and like dig with my hands. I don't like what? what? I didn't know what the alternative was. And I just, he terrified me. When he was around, I worked very hard. And when he was gone, I had a 17-year-old's work ethic. No offense. No. Offense taken. All right. Jesus were literally our boss at work, we'd be honest, we'd be integrous, right? Because he'd always know. We wouldn't cheat. We'd do things the right way. I'm pretty sure we'd go above and beyond to please him. Definitely know we wouldn't fool ourselves about the sacred secular divide. Like, oh, I'm at my job that has nothing to do with Jesus, so I'm just going to work. I'm not going to live for him. When Jesus is your boss... He comes to work with you. He's in your, you're in his presence. And that divide gets absolutely obliterated. We would more than likely be even more committed to disciple making. And we can do that by contributing. We can contribute to disciple making in our work by doing good work that gives the faith a good reputation. And where opportunity affords itself from doing good work and being on time and being a good employee and being a coworker that people really appreciate for those things, it affords us opportunities to share the gospel, certainly. But at the very least, we give ourselves to doing good work that gives the faith a good reputation. If Jesus is your boss, which he is, then even mundane work or work that you're really discontent with can be turned to worship. You can do it for Jesus. You can do it knowing that you're in the presence of Jesus in that work. So we are told in this text to work hard and to work for Jesus. To what end? What's the point? Why? Well, we're going to, the concluding couple of points will go there. The first is for God's glory. 
We work hard and work for Jesus for his glory. So third, glorify God in your work. Well, what is glory anyways? What's glory? It literally means, it comes from the Hebrew word kavod, and it means literally weighty or heavy, right? If you have a deep conversation with somebody, you might say, wow, that was heavy. You know, or they're, they're kind of spilling their heart and they're going through some tough things. Man, that's heavy. What does that really mean? It doesn't mean God weighs a lot. It means that the, the things are, there's, there's importance and significance. So if God is glorious, he's weighty, important, significant. We get a picture of this in Second Chronicles where King Solomon and all of Israel come together to dedicate the temple to God. It's a place that thousands of people spent seven years constructing, right? All, all kinds of trades and artisans given to this work. And then it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. See, God's glory was there in that moment before those thousands of people because he had come close. Because he drew near to them. And what's the response of, to God's glory, this presence, this nearness to God felt among them? This overwhelming sense of how good God is. So his glory is revealed there. They're stunned by it. And what does it produce in them? This overwhelming sense of his goodness. It says they, they, they respond on their faces to the ground for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So the glory of God is his, his, his weighty significance and importance. And, it, and we recognize it in these instances when it seems that God has come quite close. It's that thing with God that in us produces awe. That's his glory. We're struck by his holiness in a way where his glory has been revealed. And God's glory ultimately is everywhere. It was in the temple, but it was also in the stars and in the vast oceans and on the mountaintops and all of those things. And then as we talk about God's glory, Paul says something striking in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Look, what could be more basic than eating and drinking? But he says, eat and drink and do everything for the glory of God. Everything. Well, that certainly includes our work. So how do we glorify God with our lives, specifically in our work? I'd like to say we can do that in at least two ways. I'll give you the two. We do that by what we do and how we do it. Glorify God in your work. How? By what you do and how you do it. First, what you do. This is what I mean by that. Be really good at what you do. Be really good at what you do. 
We glorify God by reshaping the raw materials of the world in such a way that God's glory and presence are made visible. So Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Creation and what God's people create Everyone at large, this is actually one of the common graces of God, is that when things are created that are stunning, that cause wonder and awe, all of this is a pointer to the fact that there's a creator behind the creation, and nobody on the planet is without an excuse for recognizing it. So this means that we're to do our work, good work, in such a way that draws people's attention to God. Glorify God in your work by what you do, doing it well in such a way that it helps people, draws attention to God, means he gets glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens. And the reference there isn't to heaven, it's to the skies and right what they could see in, in the vast array. And, and, and so how does a star glorify God in the heavens? By being a bright burning star. Like, how does a mountain glorify God in, in the creation? We know this in Chilliwack. Stunning mountains. I hear some of you climb things like that. Amazing. Like, mountaintops, they're, stun- they're beautiful. How does a mountain glorify God? By looking as beautiful as it does surrounding us in Chilliwack. That's how it glorifies God. So in one sense, how do you glorify God in your work? You do really good work. I heard it said once, like, how, is, how does a pilot be a Christian pilot? Like, how do they do that? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian pilot? And the answer is you land the plane. And you land the plane in such a way that it can be flown again. Like, like that's, that's the basic, like, that's, that's, that's step one of the answer I'm trying to give here. Like, what we do glorifies God. If you're a pilot, you land the plane and it gets used again. Nobody has, has, I think, done in, in church history, done better work on vocation than Martin Luther. Martin Luther just loved to connect all work, all work, all of it to glorifying God, this rich vocation of work. And he's attributed with saying, there's some debate about whether he actually said it or not, but he's attributed with saying that the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. We just heard about the temple. You should read about the construction of the temple and all the materials and all of the trades and all of the artists and all of the things that they contributed for years. These thousands of people doing good work that in and of itself brought glory to God. God provides. We also see this in the Psalm. God provides for the needs of the earth. But he doesn't just provide us a glass of milk, does he? He provides us with the cows and he provides us with the pastures. But then Martin Luther also said, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. You a hired hand on a farm? You are one of the fingers of God, Martin Luther said, by milking that cow because the world is nourished through it. So by you going at an ungodly hour to that barn and milking a cow, it's for the good of all and to the glory of God by you simply doing 
the work, showing up, working hard, being on time. But there's another layer to this, isn't there? It's how we do it. So do good work, what we do, good work. How we do it, by serving with Christ-likeness. By serving with Christ-likeness. What does that look like? Well, everything you know about the gospel, we'll talk a little bit about it in a bit, Everything you know about the gospel, the example that Jesus was to us, the things that he did, what God is to us, we can exemplify that. We can give ourselves to that. God is hardworking. We should be hardworking. God is honest. We should have integrity. God is sacrificial. We should be sacrificial. And on and on and on and on. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The call there is to do your work well, to do it diligently, And to be a good witness to those around you by being faithful to your work. Back to Luther. It wasn't just that he was saying that you should just be a good shoemaker by making good shoes, period, and God loves a great pair of shoes. No, that's not ultimately it. What he's getting at is that what marks Luther's doctrine of vocation is the insistence that the work is done in service of the neighbor and of the world. God likes good shoes, not for their own sake, but because your neighbor needs them. So if your neighbor needs shoes, make him a good pair of shoes. God is glorified in the good work and how you do it to the ends which are for the good of others. Johann Sebastian Bach signed his incredible music with two sets of initials, his own, JSB, and SDG. It's short for the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, which translated essentially to to God alone be the glory. Every piece of music he would sign, SDG, to God alone be the glory. In the writing of beautiful music, God was glorified and he wrote it to those ends that God would get glorified through his music. What if we, all of us, Think about the thousands of man hours this coming week, this coming month, represented here in this room. What if we do, what if what we do and how we do it were solely Deo Gloria, every one of us? What we do and how we do it to God alone for glory. Lastly, I'm going to read verse 23 again and then on to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So lastly, Jesus will reward you in your work. I already talked about the fact that there's dignity in all work. Look, if your work isn't a detriment to people, isn't harmful to people, but it actually leads to flourishing even in some way, right? Like, I was talking about this a little bit in the first service, was talking about the fact that like you might think that the fact that you mop a bathroom floor in a public restroom to be like the lowest job or something like that. I just need to let you know your job is very important. Imagine if that person didn't exist. (laughs) Like we think, oh, that works so menial. Oh, it's meaningless. Oh, it doesn't matter. Think about the public restrooms on your road trips this summer and if no one ever mopped them. It's an important job. You can do it to the glory of God. And how we do it 
is, is using our work to be salt and to be light. Look, the Great Commission is never set aside for the cultural mandate. Both come in. We create culture. We work towards human flourishing and do good work. All the while, these create opportunities to fulfill the Great Commission of making disciples, that we would be the kinds of people that are salt and light in these places. We give ourselves to good work. And a motivator for that is the fact that Jesus says here that he will reward us. We will receive an inheritance as a reward. In other words, Jesus pays best. You think your work is insignificant? You're not getting paid what you should. You're not being honored like you should. People don't recognize, right, your work and how, you know, whatever. You can take comfort in this. Jesus pays best. And the irony in this, of course, in this particular text is that slaves didn't receive any inheritance. That's who Paul's talking to here. And then he's saying, and you will have an inheritance as your reward. You have a reward. It's in Jesus. So he's, he's speaking to people that otherwise did not have an inheritance. But in Jesus, even the slave is an heir, an heir of the kingdom of God, a son or daughter of the king of kings. See, this is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel and the good news. Every one of us, Romans 3 says, fall short of the glory of God, talks about the fact that every single one of us have these kind of twisted motivations in our heart, are given to selfishness, given to... Um, really depravity, we're all enslaved. We're all slaves. We're all sinners and we need rescue. And Jesus steps into our lives and offers us freedom, does away with our sin. On the cross, Jesus paid that penalty for our sin so that we could be free. So the way that this applies to our work is you're working for Jesus himself and he will reward you for all work that's done for his glory. Even if you consider your job to be menial and mundane work, it will be rewarded if it's done for Jesus. Your work unto the Lord now is headed for an inheritance. It's significant. It's meaningful. It is not lost. It's not missed by the one who matters most. And of course, our inheritance, our reward itself is ultimately Jesus. John Mark Comer said, Jesus pays really well. The only thing is you get your first paycheck after you die. So. But we need to know this as a gospel motivator in our work. There's an inheritance awaiting us. The gospel, which is salvation by grace through faith, it's offered to you as a gift. Receive Jesus and all that he's done for you. It's a free gift to receive. And the one who can be relied on for that salvation can be relied on in your present and your future. He has you. He seeks you. He desires you. He offers you salvation to receive it. He's got you covered now. And he's telling you he has promises awaiting you, inheritance awaiting you to come. You can trust him in the here and now. that He will meet your every need. And so you are free. The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure to secure our identity in our work. Because our identity is in Christ. So we don't need to trample people to get to the top. Right? We don't need to dehumanize people or not look at them as made in the image of God, we can treat them well because we're not needing to get anything out of them. Our identity is already found in Jesus. We don't have to find it primarily in our work. So we're freed to love God and neighbor. Two quick stories. Um, 
A number of years ago, I worked at a different church in a different town, and in the apartment building I lived in, I was in the elevator one day, and we were, he, we were talking about, you know, the work that we do. And he said, oh, I went to that church once. I went there for a, a Christmas production. He said, I, I went there. It's the one time I went to that church, and my boss was there, and he, I guess he goes to that church, and he saw me in the foyer and said, what are you doing here? And of course, that was his last time being there, and He's telling me this in the elevator, just clearly not coming back. Another story, um, Manhattan, New York, uh, a, a, an executive doing very well in New York City, um, had this really capable, up-and-coming, young uh, female employee. She was doing great work, but one particular project she was working on, she made a, like a colossal error, and she was like, I am going to get fired but she never was. Eventually, she found out that her boss took the blow. Said, ah, it's my fault. That's on me. He had enough credibility, credit in the company that, well, he wasn't going to get fired over it. She would have been. And she heard that he took that hit, that blow for her. And so she went to him and was like, I don't understand. We're in New York City. It's dog-eat-dog. Dog. Everybody's trying to climb over, trample over everybody else to get the next position. All anybody does in this city is take credit for the good work of the person below them and blame the person below them for the work that they do wrong. I've never heard of, I've never experienced someone who would take responsibility for my error when I'm beneath them. What? Why are you doing this, she said. He said, ah, oh, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 just, I just like to do, I was happy to do it. It's not a big deal. And she just was like, that's not, that doesn't make sense. Nobody does that. Why? Finally, he said, it's because I follow Jesus. I follow someone who sacrificed all. I follow a leader who served the least. So that's just, that's just what we do. The reason I know this story is because this young woman ended up following him to his church and ended up going up to the pastor in that church and telling her, him the story. She eventually gave her life to Jesus because she had the kind of boss that didn't need his identity and the, all the credibility at work. He already had all his credibility in Jesus and therefore he was available now to serve people in a way that nobody else ever would. As employers in this room and employees in this room, you have precisely the same opportunities at your fingertips. If you are in that service role at the very bottom rung, you have the opportunity to work hard with joy. Well, no one else has joy in that bottom rung because your identity is already in Christ. You're already in him. You have an inheritance as a son and daughter of the king of kings coming your way. What's left to earn? So that frees you as, as the employee on the lowest run or the employer of many to serve with joy and kindness, sacrifice. John Coltrane, the, the great jazz saxophonist, gave his life to the Lord and wrote in the liner notes of A Love Supreme, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, 
I humbly ask to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this had been, has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. He goes on, this album is a humble offering to him. I love Supreme. An attempt to say, thank you, God, through our work. Even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. He's saying the, it's not the only way to honor God is with what you say and what you feel. But even in your very work, it's a way of saying, thank you, God. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. See, up until this point for John Coltrane, his music served himself. The record sales, the attendance at the concerts, the applause, they were serving him. The applause is what gave him his meaning until he found all the applause he needed in Jesus and it was enough. So then no longer, he, he didn't no longer need the crowd to serve him. He was available to serve the crowd. He was available now for the first time to make music as an offering to God. And he is actually stating that this spiritual awakening of coming to life helped him live a richer, fuller, and more productive life. He was more useful. He was better at his work because he had ultimately found everything in Christ and it was enough. And so now his work could be used as a conduit of the grace of God used to serve people, not to use them. Central, if you've surrendered your life to Christ and you are his, you are no longer a slave to your work. You no longer need to look to it to determine your identity and your worth. You're freed to honor God by loving and serving others through your work. God's transforming grace gives us the strength to labor diligently in God's service to the glory of God and for the good of others. That's a theology of work. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I just cannot get over the fact of your finished work on the cross where you could declare from the cross, it is finished, it is enough, it is accomplished, my work here is done. In paying the penalty for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you for your work. We praise you for the work you continue to do among us in our lives. You're drawing us even now. You're wooing us with this good news of salvation. You're changing here and now by a move of your spirit in our hearts, impressing on us a desire to not attain, attain, get more credibility and more credibility, but you're, you're, you're working desires in us right now, Lord, to lay it all down, to offer our lives as worship to you for your fame and for the good of the others around us. Oh God, I pray that you would make us here at Central, all of us in this room, useful workers in whatever we put our minds and our hands to every day. Give us the kind of theology of work that works on Monday as we go. Make us your servants. Make us your ambassadors. Help us do good work. In Jesus' name, amen.